The reading this morning comes in two parts, but they sort of follow on directly one from the other. Starting at Acts, right at the beginning of verse 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented them to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the promises of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Turn over the page to verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet who your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, 
dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men burned Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged them off, both men and women, and put them in prison. Thank you, Jackie. So David's going to come and uh, talk to us now, um, and I will pray for you if that's okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for David, for his commitment to us and to your word. I pray that you would fill him with your Holy Spirit as he speaks to us, that you would speak powerfully through him. Amen. Amen. Good morning. I'm going to start with a poem. Surprise, surprise. Uh, not one I've written. One by, come on, one by uh, Rudyard Kipling. I don't really like that much, but um, this poem was uh, recommended as a piece of writing advice in a writing workshop I went to. But when you actually look at the whole thing, the kind of first four lines of it are quite good advice for writers, but the rest of it is really about kind of being an exasperated parent. And um, so I relate to it on that level as well. Uh, It says, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I send them over land and sea. I send them east and west. But after they have worked for me, I give them all a rest. I let them rest from nine till five, for I am busy then, as well as breakfast, lunch and tea, for they are hungry men. But different folk have different views. I know a person small... She keeps 10 million serving men who get no rest at all. She sends them abroad on her own affairs from the second she opens her eyes. One million hows, two million wares, and seven million whys. So, I don't know if that's familiar to anyone. That was written 100 years ago, so... uh, (laughs) So we're thinking about mission. This is the second part of our series... Uh, power to the people, and uh, which is kind of the second half. And last week, we got the answer to who. And the answer is, thank you. Rachel heard this already, so she... <laughs> uh, but yeah, last week, Jen came and talked to us about the Holy Spirit, who is the consistent actor in the book of Acts. Uh, we call the book kind of sometimes the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit might be a better... Uh, way of referring to it, because all of the people in the book do it in the power of the Spirit. So it's really uh, who is the Holy Spirit works, and we work with the Holy Spirit, which is cool because, you know, we're not doing it in our own strength. I, I really like that. Um, but this story 
which is really kind of a bunch of stories put together, uh, answers three more questions. It answers where do we do mission, why do we do mission, and how do we do mission. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. So we start with a crisis, the crisis of these uh, Hellenistic uh, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic means Greek. And so the implication is it's, uh, these are people who, at the time, everyone spoke Greek. Like, you know how most people, or lots of people in the world today speak English, and it's kind of, that's a kind of good common language, but everyone has their own languages as well. Greek was that then, which is why the Old Testament is written, uh, the New Testament is written in Greek. And so the Greek-speaking Jews were people who had come to Jerusalem, but they'd been born elsewhere in the world. So they were kind of uh, these desperate peoples who had come in to live in Jerusalem. And the reason there were so many widows is because apparently at the time there was a bit of a, a fad for, this is going to sound weird, there was a fad for dying in Jerusalem because it was considered kind of more virtuous to die in Jerusalem. And um, obviously, they believed in the resurrection of the dead. And so it's obviously much better to kind of, if you're going to come back to life, to just be raised straight in Jerusalem. So this was a thing which people wanted to do. They wanted to die in Jerusalem. And so what they do is they'd wait until the kind of last minute, and then they'd move to Jerusalem, and then they'd die. And the effect of this was that there were loads of widows with no support structures, because they've been taken away from their support structures, they've been taken away from their family and their synagogue uh, or churches. And so that's why there was this kind of explosion in the population of widows. And this became a problem because uh, the social security at the time was based on your community and your family and uh, your uh, religious community. So... There were too many widows for the administrative structures of the early church to deal with. And the Hellenistic uh, Jews came and they said, this is our problem. And what the apostle said is really interesting. This is, um, there are kind of a couple of points there. But the first thing which I want to say, which is kind of a side point, but I think is super relevant to us now, so I'm also going to say it, is that the response of the apostles, Peter and uh, John and all of that lot, was not to sort the problem out. Their response was, actually, this isn't our responsibility. Our responsibility is preaching, praying, um, doing the work Jesus gave to us. It's not our responsibility. It's, we don't have time. We don't have uh, the energy to sort out an administrative problem to do with feeding widows. And the reason why I mention this is because we are in the process of hiring a new minister and we're all very tired, but we can't expect the new minister to come in and do all the work for us because that's not what they're for. And we have to be looking to employ someone, actually, who will say, that is not my job. My job is to do whatever this person's ministry is pray and preach and you know there will be things which this person does and there'll be a lot of stuff though where when we go to them and we say this thing is really on my heart what is the church doing about it the question shouldn't be oh dear the question shouldn't be what are you minister going to do about it 
The question should be, can you pray for me to do something bad? So that's what we should be looking for as we kind of go forward, is we want a minister who will encourage us in our own ministries. Because the answer to the question of where do we do mission is wherever we are. Because the people who were chosen all have Greek names. So the people who were chosen to sort out this problem were people from that community. When we think about missions, I think we have a really Victorian idea of missions. We think about, um, was it Gladys Aylward kind of adding up all her coins until she could afford a, a, t- a one-way ticket to China? Or we think about people who kind of, they kind of up sticks and they move to a place where they've never met anyone before and they start learning the language and they translate the Bible into whatever language that is. And that's a really great way of doing mission, but I don't think that's the kind of mission we're, most of us are called to. The kind of mission most of us are called to is to do the work where we are. If you don't think you have a mission field, you need to look in your diary. You need to knock on your neighbour's door. You need to walk the new developments of Camborne and see what's going on there because your mission field is where you've been put. So I can't actually answer the question of where your mission field is. You have to answer that for yourself. But what I'm telling you is you need to open your eyes to where you are because that is what the apostles told the Hellenistic Jews to do. Your mission field is what's in front of you. So then Stephen, who's kind of comes across being the de facto kind of leader of this group, um, I know that Philip is there as well, we'll be hearing about next week. But Stephen kind of goes off and he's full of the Holy Spirit and he, he's preaching and um, doing miracles all over the place. And he gets into a debate uh, with one of the synagogues in Jerusalem. And it's a debate about the temple and about the significance of the temple. Now, something that's worth bearing in mind is the Hebrew Jews, the Jews who grew up in Israel, were really used to being at the temple. Because, I mean, even if you lived quite far away from Jerusalem, if you were still in Israel, it was a few days' walk to the temple. You're never that far away from the temple. So the, the Hebrew Jews were really into the temple. The Hellenistic Jews, of which Stephen was one, were part of this diaspora of Jews all across the world. And so they had got used to not thinking about the temple so much. You know, the temple was kind of part of their theology, but actually their day-to-day experience of faith was in synagogues. And that's where the kind of synagogue system came from, these local kind of communities that would study and pray together. And maybe they travel once or twice, uh, not even a year necessarily, you know, uh, but very rarely to the temple. And... So for Stephen, the temple was maybe not as significant. Uh, He didn't have as much baggage in, kind of tied up with his theology of the temple. And his Christian theology put him in opposition with those who really cared deeply about the temple. Not that the temple was wrong, but that it it had become kind of blown up in the minds of the people he was talking to. And so he starts having these debates about it, and it ends up with him on trial for blasphemy. 
And the prosecutors come and they say, you're saying all this stuff about the temple, about it being torn down, about Jesus replacing the temple, and we don't understand what that's all about. And he, and he gives this speech, which is really kind of like a sermon. And he says this. Think about Abraham. Abraham heard God somewhere not in Jerusalem. And he kind of briefly toured through, you know, he was a, um, a nomad and he briefly did in the Holy Land, but most of his time he was spent travelling around. But he knew God and he walked with God. Think about uh, Joseph going off into Egypt, being kind of sent away by his brothers. And he grows up in Egypt, but he knows God there and he, he meets God there and he walks with God there. Think about... Uh, Moses, where did he hear God? He heard God in a burning bush and he heard him on top of a mountain and he never reached Jerusalem. The Israelites then wandered for 40 years and they took the tabernacle with them which carried the presence of God but they never went to the temple, they never went to Jerusalem. Eventually the tabernacle did get to Jerusalem and they didn't build a temple. For like hundreds of years they didn't build a temple and eventually David uh, wanted to build a temple, and he wasn't allowed to. And it was actually his son who built a temple. So you got Abraham, you got Moses, you got David, all of these kind of great figures from history, and they didn't have a temple. So what Stephen's doing is he's saying, look, I, you're arguing with me about this, so here's the history, here's the theology, here's the things which I've come to by thinking it through. The why of what we believe is, again, something which I can't tell you, but it is really important that we all have that because when we come to these times of trial and of making account for our faith, we have to have an answer to these questions. Why do you believe in God? What's he ever done for you? Who is Jesus to you? We need to dig into our scripture. We need to dig into our history. We need to listen to sermons you know, better sermons than this one. The point is, I can't answer that question for you because the reason is going to be different for everyone. But when it came to the crunch, Stephen could answer that question eloquently and convincingly. So that's the why. How do we do this? How do we do mission? Laced through the speech is a secondary theme. He's talking about the temple and about how the temple, you can meet with God without needing a temple. This kind of radical idea, but it's a, a kind of an idea which he has solid defences for. But he also says something else. He says, where were you talking to the priests. Where were you all throughout this history? You were one of Joseph's brothers, selling him into slavery, weren't you? You were one of the people who rebelled against Moses, weren't you? You were one of the people who, when God was talking to Moses on the mountain, constructed an idol at the base of the same mountain, weren't you? 
you were, when they were walking in the wilderness, he quotes this thing from Amos. Um, Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness house of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. So when the presence of God was with you, you turned to other gods, to idols, didn't you? In fact, every time a prophet has come to you, you have ignored them and you have killed them, haven't you? When John the Baptist came and said the Messiah was on his way, you killed him, didn't you? When Jesus came and was the Messiah, this was just a few years before, you killed him, didn't you? And it's like Stephen is he's, hes challenging their authority and he's saying, these are the kind of people you are. When someone comes to you and speaks God's word, you kill them, don't you? And it's like he's goading them. Because when they do what they're about to do, they will prove that he was right. Because they're the kind of people who kill people who speak for God. And sure enough, they're so angered that they take him outside the city and they throw rocks at him until he dies. And they knew that he spoke for God. Because before he even started speaking, they looked at his face and saw that it shone like an angel. Like Moses' face shone when he came down from speaking to God. Like Jesus' face shone on the mountain. So how do we do mission? We do mission fearlessly. And where does that fearlessness come from? When Stephen looks up into heaven as they begin killing him, he looks up and he sees heaven open and he sees the Son of Man, his Saviour, standing at the right hand of God. And he knows that his citizenship is not on earth but in heaven. And he knows that as he walks his mission field, his footsteps resound in eternity. And from that confidence, he gets the fearlessness to do what he has to do. And the direct result of this, by the way, is that the Great Commission happens. Until this point, the disciples had not taken the gospel outside of Jerusalem and its immediate surroundings. But because of this action, the church is persecuted and scattered and goes into the whole earth. So, by the way, all of us owe our faith to this exact thing, because otherwise it doesn't get out of Jerusalem. Jesus said in Luke 9, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. 
I don't know that we're all called to be martyrs, which I'm sure you're glad to hear. But I think we should take these answers seriously. We, in this second half of our series on mission, the first half was about Jonah. Jonah knew where and went somewhere else. Jonah should have known why, but I think when you look at how he responds to the people um, uh, repenting, he obviously didn't know why. And I think it's very hard to read the story of Jonah and uh, come to the conclusion he did anything at all fearlessly. But look at Jesus' example. And look at Stephen's example. And look at the example of Peter and Paul who will come to. And you'll see that Luke is very keen to say that while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. And Luke's expecting you to be able to draw the obvious parallel there. Because our mission is a mission of the Spirit, which is the mission of Jesus. And we do it where we're put. We know the reasons for which we do it. And whatever it is we're doing, we do it fearlessly. Knowing that our reward is already won in heaven. Amen.